This is Bonjour Chai, the real Stanley Cup was the friends we made along the way edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Melissa Lantzman in Toronto and Alana Zakon in Vancouver. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's episode, we will discuss Judaism, sustainability, and climate change with Zipporah Berman, as well as corporations and free speech. How are you guys? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Melissa? Doing pretty, uh, doing pretty good. How are you guys? We're, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's summer. Things are good. Mel- uh, you're in a campaign, I'm guessing, Melissa? I am, uh, I am in full, full campaign mode. If, uh, if anyone wants to, to hear about it, we're, we're expecting an election. Uh, I think, I think everybody's expecting election, uh, this fall in, uh, in Canada, and uh, we're we're getting ready. As as a lot of a lot of our listeners know, I'm a candidate in the next one, and uh, we're hitting the ground running and doing all of the things like knocking on all of the doors and setting up a campaign office and just doing uh, doing our thing up in Thornhill, uh, just north of Toronto. Yeah, what's new with you, Alana? Nice. Speaking of speaking of Thornhill, I mean, I'm not moving to Thornhill. Let's be clear. But where I was going with that is. When I was a baby was the last time I lived in Toronto, and it was in Thornhill. So I'm actually um, going to be moving to Toronto uh, to live closer to my family, who's mostly in Montreal. So that's my big thing that I've been focusing on, looking for places. Um, not in Thornhill, sorry. Oh, it's Probably downtown. But um, I've, I'm glad to say I've never, I have never lived in Toronto. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, I think I can handle Toronto for up to a week at a time. Um, but, uh, you know, Toronto's Toronto. So, Avi, tell us what's going on in the Montreal summer. Uh, the Montreal summer, it's, uh, you know, kids are in day camp. I'm busy. I'm recording uh, all sorts of other podcasts, which we can talk about in the future. I'm ready to launch two new podcasts, actually. Um, wow. Let me, I can tell you briefly, and there's a little bit of log rolling, um, and it's not going to, I was going to put it in my nachas, but we'll do something else. Uh, I am set to launch a new podcast called Hyphen. Um, it's a podcast for Judeo-Christians, uh, and it's me and an amazing Anglican theologian, and we talk about like what Jews need to know about Christianity and what Christians need to know about Judaism. Meaning, mm-hmm. like, a lot of Christians don't know what a chassid is or orthodoxy versus reform and all this stuff. And Jews don't know about Easter or Advent or the difference between the Pope and a cardinal and a bishop and all of these things and different denominations. So we sit and we discuss and how we read the Bible differently and what, what are the similarities. Uh, it's a really interesting discussion. We started recording a few episodes already, and we are set to release that next week. So um, you can check out Hyphen um, on, you know, wherever you get podcasts or on my website, jewishlivinglab.com. Um, and then there's others coming in the future that we've been recording that I'm not ready to talk about yet. So uh, I've been keeping busy indoors recording stuff um, because it's, you know, it, there's not much else to do. Well, things are opening up. But sure. Looking forward to that one. Excellent. Um, Before we get to our first topic, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom design jewelry, along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit them online or in person, and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. 
Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. So I don't know if you heard this story this past weekend um, that there was uh, a Starbucks in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, somebody walked in over the weekend and saw a Palestinian flag and some a message of solidarity posted on that little like blackboard that they have there with the, the drinks and where your coffee is coming from today or whatever. Um, immediately took a picture of it, put it up on Facebook, started calling for a boycott. Um, Starbucks Canada was reached. They didn't want to make a comment, but then they told the, the, uh, the store to take it down um and you know and that's that um what do we make of this is this really a story at all well i'm i'm gonna uh i'm gonna jump in as the uh, as the resident tory on uh on on the panel and and look this isn't a this isn't a story in in more than this is a story for Starbucks. This is a story for, for corporate values, for corporate culture, for corporate rules about what you want uh, on display in, uh, in your stores. And as a consumer, uh, as a consumer that is particularly pro-free uh, speech, and if you're not hurting anyone, I've got, you know, I've, I've got my own, uh, my own uh, you know, what I can do about it and as I can decide as a consumer whether I want to now spend my money there. So that's, I mean, that's a problem for, uh, for Starbucks. It's certainly not a, not a problem for, uh, for me, but I think this discussion, frankly, is more about uh, what, corporations, uh, what corporations do in terms of values and, and political stances and if that's appropriate in a, uh, in a location like that when you're trying to serve customers coffee or snacks. Right. I think it becomes a bigger issue for me when, uh, not this incident in particular, but when you look at the broader picture of companies um, that have been outwardly homophobic or um, anti-Semitic or, or, or ones where the actual CEOs of the company have made public statements expressing their opinions, because then it becomes more of like a human ethical issue as opposed to something like this of someone just supporting um, Palestinian rights, which isn't making any claim against Jews or, you know, there, there's no, there was no hate um, implied in this um, picture that was posted, right? No, I mean, it was just like I said, it was a Palestinian flag, which is illegal. Yeah. Like it's there, it's a flag. And, uh, and, and a, a message of solidarity for the Palestinian people. Like I, I thought about it right away and I was like, well, I can assure you that if it had been an Israeli flag and saying we support, you know, Israel strong, um, everybody would be like, look how awesome Starbucks is. They support Israel and this is amazing, right? And and the day that somebody would have walked in and said, well, you're not really supporting Palestinian rights, you should take it down and complain to Starbucks, we would have gone and said, what, they're allowed to say whatever they want. That's perfectly fine. We support Israel. They support Israel and that's amazing. And And so I'm with both of you in the sense that Yes, I think Starbucks should have taken it down because maybe they want to have zero political opinions about anything, um, right. you know. And the flip side of that is uh, we shouldn't be complaining about it because people have the right to, you know, promote what they want and solidarity and loving X and not saying we hate Y. Sure. 
pe- people have the right to to promote that insofar as their their individual right to promote it, whether it's on your Facebook or on your Instagram or your own feeds. Uh, I don't necessarily think that right exists when you work within uh, within a corporation. I think that's up to uh, corporation. the corporation. Yeah. And don't forget, don't forget that this is a politically charged conversation. So whether you think it's uh, you know it's 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 just supporting Palestine or it's just uh, uh, supporting uh, um, Israel, there is a big conversation that is currently happening with a very polarized public on the difference between, in my in my view, uh, right and wrong. So I, I don't think it's as innocent as uh, you know just supporting uh, a, a certain uh, side. It comes it comes with a uh, it comes with a basket of goods, a politically charged conversation, and uh, I think that this is a story more about uh, uh, Starbucks and how to get a handle on uh, you know individual and. Op- opinions of uh, of their employees that don't belong in a corporate workplace yeah I, I i agree that it's you know but but what if a corporation does come and make a stand against right. something or for something right if could you imagine if starbucks went out and said we are for uh fracking we believe in you know the oil sands as the future of canadian economy and we support this right would we you know would there be a backlash against Starbucks in the East, but then in Alberta, they'd be like, yay, Starbucks, this is amazing. Probably. That sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty accurate. But it would be, first of all, Starbucks is, is not stupid enough to like do something like that because it's a contentious issue. And so that's why Starbucks right. asked them to take it down, not because they don't, they believe in, you know, Israeli rights over Palestinian rights, or they don't believe in like whatever it is. They just, they're like, this is complicated. And Starbucks tends to only uh, support social justice causes that are incredibly safe, like Pride Month in June in the year 2021, Mm -hmm. where 20 years ago, they would have never done something like that. Right. I'm curious, do you personally, Melissa and Avi, like when you hear stories of corporations who do outwardly declare a stance, whether it's political or social or any kind of merging of the two, do you, are you one of those people who are like, oh, now that I know this, like I'm never going to shop at Urban Outfitters or in you know insert company of choice yeah that look that's that's the power i have as a as a consumer i can make my decisions if a corporation makes their decisions about uh what they support uh politically and i'm you know i i think that there is uh that there's sometimes a a a value in in corporations siding with a certain set of uh values but oftentimes this is about the bottom line this is about uh, serving, uh, you know, s- serving coffee to the, m- the, the, the largest number of people, uh, and, and maybe not taking a position, uh, maybe taking a position on better coffee. Yeah. I, I have a hard time with it. I, I think it's a case by case basis. And I think that because corporations are so vast and so impersonal that I can't imagine that a corporation is taking a stance because even within that corporation, there is so much going on, right? Do, if we are, suppose somebody is pro-union, and they, they decide to say, we're going to stop buying from Amazon, right? Are they, are they sitting and looking every time they shop to make sure that everything is pro-union, right? It, some people do, and some people say, okay, I'm against this, but like at the end of the day, I just, the people that I'm shopping from are, you know, I'm buying from, I'm, I'm paying Jeff Bezos, but I'm paying so many other people in between, and there's so much there, right? Mm-hmm. To me, the, the interesting analog is, do we stop listening to some musicians' music, for example, when they are pro-Palestinian, which a lot of people do, and a lot of people don't. There's a lot of Jews, for example, that don't listen to Wagner, and there's a lot of Jews that say, I don't care how 
overtly anti-Semitic Wagner was, his music is amazing and I'm able to separate the two things. Right. Yeah. Separating the art from the artist. That's a big conversation. Or separating the product from the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. That happened. That's a big conversation in the arts community. But let's, let's, let's not forget that if, if we are going to defend free speech in this country, which, uh, you know, is a, is a, is a central tenant to, uh, to our democracy that we cannot pick and choose, uh, when that, uh, when that free speech is allowed, what you can do as an individual, as a consumer, as, uh, you know, as a listener of music, is that you can make your own choices, uh, and that's uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, like I will, I won't defend uh, you know every single value, but I will, uh, I will defend your right uh, to say what you want to say in this country. And I think there's an attack on uh, on uh, on free speech, and you don't have to look further than this news story to see it. Yeah, thank you, our resident Tory, for standing up for free speech rights. <laughs> I do what I can for the people. Melissa had to step out for this segment, but she will be back with us for Nachas at the end. This summer has seen record-setting temperatures across Western Canada and the USA, with individuals dying from the heat and communities going up in flames from wildfires. And while we hope that even the most ardent climate denialists would be rethinking their positions by now, there is still much work to be done. Joining us to talk about this is Sipora Berman, who is an author, a professor, a climate activist. She has been a leading voice across many issues, but particularly with uh, deforestation in British Columbia from her early days at Cleoquot Sound to the blockade at Ferry Creek this past spring. Sipora, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start with, um, you know, just, you know, where do you think uh, we we are at this point in time in 2021? Just give us sort of a, a spotlight, a lens um, that we can move forward from. Well, we're all experiencing it. I mean, whether you live in British Columbia or not, uh, it's impossible now and on any part of the globe uh, not to have uh, felt some weird or extreme weather um, at at best, and at worst, not to know family members that have had to flee from fires, from floods, from droughts, uh, from extreme weather. We're we're living in a moment uh, where um, more people lose their homes today as a result of climate change than war, where the greatest threat um, now to human health, including the pandemic we have just experienced, um, is in part um, either made worse or because Uh, of our changing climate. So we're living in this moment where literally every ton of carbon matters. And, you know, climate change is complicated. But what's not complicated is that it comes from three products, oil, gas, and coal. They're trapped in our atmosphere, they're blanketed in the earth, and they're smothering us. And and we need to change uh, how we use those products. Totally. I know that there was some recent announcement about um, electric cars being something that will be more enforced. My mom sent it to me, so I'm not sure if it was just in Quebec. I'm not going to lie. I'm not an expert when it comes to environmentalism. I try to stay up to date on what I hear. Um, So I do have a a lot of questions around that um, in terms of what can we do as, as, as someone or if other people are listening who don't feel like they're experts on environmentalism but want to make a change, what are the little things that we can do in our, in our day-to-day that uh, help with these problems? Is it changing to electric cars? Um, what are other, other things that we can do? Well, there's no question that, that um, changing our lifestyles is important. You know, if you have the ability to buy an electric car, 
um, instead of a fossil fuel car, you could, you should. It, it also makes sense um, because it, you're right, Canada is going to be banning the fossil fuel car. Um, they say, uh, the federal government says by 2035, many countries around the world are doing that. Um, and so electric cars are going to get uh, more prevalent and, and cheaper, and that's great. But, you know, this, at this point, you know, scientists call what we're living in right now a climate emergency. And when you're in an emergency, it's not just about whether you buy better cars or better light bulbs. It's about better laws. If we are going to make the world safe for our children, for our grandchildren, if we're going to ensure that we're not just limping from one disaster to another, this flood, that heat dome, that wildfire, then... Um, then we actually need to change our laws so that we build new and different infrastructure to keep people safe. The good news is that now renewable energy is actually cheaper than fossil fuels in most parts of the world. Battery storage is way better. But so if you're thinking about one thing that you can do, I think the most important thing that people can do is pick up the phone, call their MLA or their MP or write a letter because we need our elected officials to know that this is the issue that matters to us, that they have our support if they act, and if they don't, that there'll be consequences. So uh, I guess I, I was going to start with a, something more personal, but I, I guess I want to go in a more global direction based on what you're just saying. One of the things that I notice, um, and I want your take on this, is that there are many, um, you know, we're a Jewish podcast, you're Jewish, we're Jewish, I want to talk about that for a bit. There are many uh, Jews involved uh, as activists in this sphere and in many other spheres in Canada. Um, and yet, we don't really see much in the way of organized, combined, collective activism from within the Jewish community um, as a Jewish entity. Um, I know Shorish exists um, in Toronto, but I can tell you that as of last week, I didn't know that that existed. And I've been involved with Chazon in the U.S. and many other organizations for 15 years. Um, why do you think that, you know, we can talk about the, the Jews as individuals, um, but yet we don't really see a lot of collective action when this really can and should be a fundamentally Jewish uh, topic? You know, I, I'm really not sure. I mean, I meet a lot of uh, Jewish leaders in, in, in the climate movement and climate policy and in, in governments around the world. Um, but I really have been surprised that I don't see more organized work on these issues, um, you know, from from Jewish institutions. And, you know, I, I wonder if it's because for so many decades, our governments well, and the fossil fuel companies themselves have tried to make it seem like this is not an issue of collective action. It's an issue of individual action. It's about what you buy. It's about what you whether or not you're responsible in your home. Um, because then the onus is kind of off them. And there's a lot of, um, I'm also an academic, there's a lot of academic research and, and, and studies right now showing how the fossil fuel industry has made us kind of feel guilty about this. It's our fault because we use oil, we, we heat our cars, we heat our homes with gas, and, and therefore, um, you know, it's kind of our fault. We have a duplicity. So people think that the only thing they can do is change their own collective action or their own lifestyle you know, their own personal responsibility. And maybe that's why it hasn't mm. moved into collective action in a lot of places. But it actually really does surprise me. I mean, as a, you know, as a Jew, we're taught, we are all Shomri Adama, we are guardians of the earth. You know, in, in the Midrash, it's, it, it's clear that we are custodians, not owners, that, that our sacred responsibility is to kun alam. And what does that mean? That not just that we have to protect, but that we have a responsibility to, to repair the world. 
and 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 so I, you know, I take that very seriously, and I and I think it's part of what, you know, fuels me. And you know, the thing that I'm actually also has always been a quandary for me is that I grew up with a sense of community and collective responsibility more than a lot of my friends, and it was because of our Jewish community. You know, I I, I grew up going going to synagogue and 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 you know, and as a teenager. Um, uh, in in USY, I was USY president. I was, you know, <laughs> and we volunteered. We volunteered at our synagogue with seniors. I volunteered with the the kids doing services, and um, and and so I, I feel like we do have a culture of volunteering and participating in our communities. But um, but I'm quite dismayed to see the lack of collective Jewish action on climate change. Actually, it needs to change, but. Every day is a new day. Was that correlation always very clear to you between your Jewish identity and your activism or your environmentalism? Or is that something that you started to recognize was more linked as you got older and learned more? It definitely was as I got older and and learned more. Um, you know, in some ways, I think I turned away in my teens or early 20s uh, from my practice and, and, and my community. I, I think it was in part because... I didn't see what I, a lot of the things that I was learning to really care about um, in, in my community. And it's as, I, it's as I've gotten older that I've, that I've come back to it, that I've really, like it, there was a practice growing up of, as I said, of being a part of community and, and engaging with my community, but not necessarily as environmentalism. And it's as I got older, as I've gotten older and looked, and looked at the teachings and, think, and thought, actually, it's right here. It's all right here for us. Yeah, I imagine there's not a lot of USY uh, presidents that went logging, you know, in their 20s to, to BC. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it... Wait, to be clear, I didn't go logging. I went to blockade logging. That's what I meant. Be... <laughs> I, I was thinking tree planting, and then I don't know why I said logging. Yeah, I, yes. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, it's really shocking to me because, like, you know, you talk about this as the, as the Tikkun Olam piece, and I see so many sources, and there's so many books about this. It's to me, and I helped write a curriculum on Jews and food and sustainability with Chazon years ago. And I, oh. I, um, if there's one topic that there is a pl- like really a, so much written about, I, I see this on Judaism and vegetarianism, but I see it on Judaism and climate change as well. Um, that the, the sustainability is there. We talk about Baltashrit, right? There's a. It's not even the midrash. There's a biblical source that says that when you besiege a city, we're not going to talk about the good or the bad in that. Um, you're not allowed to cut down the fruit bearing trees because just for you know the sake of you know. Uh, punishing whoever's being besieged because you're not or or for battering rams or anything like that because fruit bearing trees actually provide us with something and the analog to me where Mm -hmm. we go and say Mm -hmm. we're cutting down trees for catalogs like with your victoria's secret activism or any other really stupid things that we do um just so that we can cut down those trees but where they're providing us not so much with fruit but with um carbon sinks and um you know everything else that comes along with the benefit of having so many trees, right? This is a biblical commandment to do this. I, I had a rabbi teach me, do a teaching once where he said that it's uh, it's a biblical prohibition based on this to drive an SUV because you should be, if you have to drive a car, you should be able to drive a smaller car and not waste as much gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much around this and yet we, um, and there's so many countries in, in America, we see so much of the stuff happening here, um, but there's so many countries where this isn't happening. There's so many places, especially in Canada, where we don't see this as a community moving forward. And in the future, I think our communities are going to matter so much more um, even than they do today. 
because when you're in a when you're in a situation where it's um, where you're in danger, where your com your your community is important, you know, if 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 you have no power, if you have no water, if if um, if you're if you're in the middle of a heat dome, and some of your neighbors are elderly. Um, your community matters. And it really, living through the heat dome uh, these last couple of weeks in British Columbia really reminded me of that, really made me think. It made me go knock on some doors and check and see if people were okay. You know, 700 people died in a four-day period in British Columbia. Um, and, and, and the uh, doctors and medical professionals are saying it's in large part because of heat exhaustion and, and and we're seeing that all over the world. It's the most vulnerable that are first impacted uh, by climate change. And so your community is, is even more important. And so we need activism in our communities in order to stop the expansion of fossil fuels, to, to push our governments to shift to the infrastructure that we need for renewable energy and safer, cleaner systems. But we also need to be thinking about how are we going to adapt to this changing climate because the climate is now changing. We're in it now. This isn't theory anymore. We're in, we're living um, in the climate era, in a changing climate. And the, and the, really the only question left in front of us is how much and how fast. Yeah. Something that blew my mind as someone who's also living in BC is just how badly our infrastructure is made for some, like a heat wave of that capacity mm -hmm. and how our houses, like my house wasn't air conditioned. We had to move to my roommate's mother's place who also didn't have an air conditioned house, but for some reason, the way her house was positioned was cooler. And we mm -hmm. were dipping our feet in like a baby swimming pool outside with fans blowing on us. Um, so I, to be honest, when I was in the thick of the heat wave, it was so intense that I wasn't even looking at the news. I was so overwhelmed by the heat that all I was thinking about was protecting the people around me. And then after it started dipping down, I was looking at the news and I was like, oh my God, people died from this. I mean, it makes sense. And then the whole thing in Lytton. So I... I wonder if now in BC, is that something that that's coming up in conversation around protecting our elders and uh, people at risk about changing things like air conditioning or um, other ways of making sure that if another big heat wave happened again, that that wouldn't occur to that degree? You know, I think it's starting. Um, but um, we have as humans uh, an, an amazing ability uh, to adapt, to see situations as the new normal, and then just go on with our daily lives. There is a, a, an enormous amount of, uh, enormous amount written in climate psychology talking about how um, people kind of adapt and turn away from it. And I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about how the most important thing we can do, or maybe the first step right now, is having the courage to face it to understand the state of the world, the climate emergency, to be talking about it, to not let us just go back to our daily lives until the next disaster. I mean, you know, I, I was horrified, of course, as everyone was, you know, last year to see thousands fleeing from the fires in California that just wreaked havoc yeah. or the floods in Miami. And now, and now what's happening? They're rebuilding apartment buildings in flood zones in Miami, you know, people are, 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 are shifting and moving slightly, but rebuilding those same towns and, 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 and we're still, um, you know, drilling for more oil and, 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 and fracking in California. I think there's a parallel here as Jews. You know, I grew up with my Bubby telling me stories of how my family escaped the pogroms in, in Poland. 
you know, how my, you know, I, I grew up with my neighbor down the street telling me how she got the number on her forearm in Auschwitz. Both talked about how lucky I was, how our families had struggled and fought for the freedom we have today and were taught as Jews never to forget. You know, we're, 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 we're taught not to take our freedoms for granted, that we have to have the courage to face what's happened and make sure it can never happen again. And I, and I think um, sometimes all of this feels too big. It's invisible sometimes. It's scary. We're too small. I'm just one person, and we turn away. And I, and I think that, you know, just like millions around the world turned away during World War II. And I, I think we have to have the courage to face what's happen, happening, you know, never forget. And we can't afford climate silence. We can't afford to turn away. And that has to be our practice right now. We have to say to people, look, it's not just about adapting to wildfires, getting more firefighters. It's about how are we going to stop this from getting worse and how are we going to protect our communities? It's, it's interesting, the analogy you bring up, um, and it has me thinking now, you know, that as a community, you know, we're focused and we've spoken on our program often about anti-Semitism in the community and, and, and the way the community feels about it. It's hard to point a finger right at, at the climate and say oh the climate hates the jews right because because it's this thing it's this entity and so it almost feels like we don't have a response to it in the same sort of way to go and say well we have to go and fix this um, because it's mm. just this amorphous thing and, and as you say we're one we're, we're such a small segment of the population that it doesn't really matter um, and i'm always struck right in that vein um, by the the tension between the individual and the you know and and the larger picture where I'm, I, I'm of the belief, and maybe you can tell me that I'm wrong, that even if everybody was a perfect, perfect citizen, drove an electric car, composted, put out very few, very little garbage, um, did everything the way that they were supposed to, made sure that their energy usage was very, very, very moderate, and everything was perfect, we still wouldn't make a real dent in it. And yet, if the top 10, you know, corporations that were polluters and, you know, fossil fuel users um, were to significantly reduce, then everything would shift around, and that it's really about larger corporations. And I, I see that in the work that you do with at, you know, targeting larger corporations and not necessarily as much the individuals. Um, how do we deal with that at the, like, we're a, we're a community, but we're a small community um, in relation to the rest of the country, um, but yet we're a leading voice in certain places. Do, do you see where that tension lies? And I wonder if you can address that. Well, as a community, we and our and Jewish institutions advocate for better laws and policies. We do. We advocate for better for laws and policies that affect Israel. We advocate for laws and policies um, that affect our daily lives all, all the time. Yeah, but that's what that's my point, right? Is that we look at things that are self-interesting, and and as a community, we don't necessarily think about the climate as something which is self-interesting specifically to the Jewish community. And and we need to. It, it, it is to it is to every community. Um, but as Jews, look, we know one of the commandments is to protect our children, to give them a better world. Our children are scared. They are marching in the streets. We all want to tell them it will be okay. Um, but right now we can't. We can't honestly tell them that their future is not going to be way more difficult and way more painful right now because of the trajectory that we're on. So we, we, we have a responsibility to have the strength to face it. And that, and that means collectively advocating uh, for our government to do more. I mean, right now in Canada, we have the worst record on climate change, meaning our pollution 
how much we pollute right now as a nation, predominantly because of oil and gas production. So this isn't even fossil fuels that we're using. It's not people in Canada using it. We're producing it and we're exporting it just from that production. That's the largest source of our pollution of our greenhouse gas emissions today in this country. And we have the worst record of any G7 country right now. And for two decades, we've had governments that are promising us climate change policies. They're even the Trudeau government has promised greater targets right now. And yet uh, our pollution has not gone down. Our emissions have not gone down. Whereas a lot of other countries have already put in place really good policies on uh, stronger policies on renewable energy. The UK has an amazing policy on a carbon budget. So we have targets in Canada, but we have no budget. It's like saying, yeah, I aspire <laughs> to only spend this much, but I have no budget to track it. Well, we have no budget to track it in this country. And so we're doing really poorly. And so, you know, it's not rocket science. We need to demand of our governments. And when we vote, we need to demand of all parties and make a decision based on which party is going to do the best on climate change. We have to start prioritizing that. And a lot of people I talk to, you know, talk about how it's, well, we also have to prioritize having a stable economy. What many people don't realize is that it's entirely linked. World economy is moving off fossil fuels. That much is clear. All the major banks have now have policies not to invest and support in the expansion of oil, gas, or coal. You know, many countries around the world have even stronger policies on electric cars, renewables, etc. All the trends show that a stronger economy is going to be one that has put in place measures to use more renewable energy than fossil fuels and to adapt to a changing climate. And so Canada right now is, is, is really behind on that. And so these, these issues are linked. And, and, and so we, we really have got to be advocating to our governments to do more. That's the bottom line. So if our listeners want to take action, do you have any resources that you would recommend, whether it's an organization or a website or anything that might provide um, a guideline to uh, what to include in, in such a letter if they wanted to write to their MP or, or write to a higher um, authority? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there isn't an environmental group in this country who's not doing something on climate change. And we're, we're, we have a lot of great organizations in this country, actually. So I, I work with stand.earth, easy to find online, stand.earth. We run a number of campaigns. Every single climate campaign we run, we first of all do the scientific research and provide it to all of our members. Uh, you can join up and be a member for free. Um, and then every time we run a campaign, we also do a draft letter or a petition. So you can literally just go online, click here, edit it how you want. And when you click, it gets sent to your MP or your MLA by giving, you know, because you give your postal code. That's the same for other environmental groups. I, I think in Toronto, we've got a great one in environmental defense. Um, you know, there's a number of amazing environmental groups across the country. And I think people need to really look at take a look at them, take the time to decide which one speaks to you. Um, but for me, those are two that, that come to mind. I, I follow environmental defense's work. I work every day uh, with Stand.Earth, and they'll provide people the information that they need. Can, can you shout out any of the uh, Jewish climate activists that you mentioned at the top that you are aware of that are doing the great work out there in Canada? There's so many. Um, but I, I, you know, I think, well... Probably one of my great heroes in the U.S. is Susan Casey Lefkowitz. She she runs all the global programs for the Natural Resources Defense Council. I think she's um, absolutely amazing. Uh, well, I think in 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 Canada, of course, um, very excited to have. Well, we'll see how the politics go. But a Green Party leader that is a a, a strong Jewish woman, Anna Mae Paul. You know, and and I think 
Um, really, I, I'm hesitating in part because I've made a commitment to myself because of the need for reconciliation in Canada and decolonization that the majority of times when I'm lifting up other people, I'm really, really trying to lift up Indigenous voices in Canada. Um, and, and, so I, and so, yes, there are a lot of great Jewish activists in this country, but I would also say um, uh, it would be, it's really important for, uh, I think, um, for all of us uh, to be looking at and lifting up the work of Indigenous activists in this country. There's an amazing climate group um, that just started a couple of years ago called Indigenous Climate Action, ICA. They just wrote a great paper analyzing Canada's climate policy. And some of the women who work there, Ariel Derringer um, and Melina Lubkon Massimo, are, are some of my great heroes. Um, in this country working on climate change. So I do, I, you know, I acknowledge that and I think it's important, but I want to point out and I will, you know, I'll double down on this, that there are many Jews um, that won't lift a finger until they see that it is a Jewish cause. Um, and that is a target that we have to be focusing on in a big way, um, you know, to, to remind people that this is, you know, not just a cause that affects Jews. This is a cause that has deep roots in Jewish sources, in historical and contemporary Jewish ideas, and that we need to really um, recognize that this is not just an issue for Jews, but this is a Jewish, um, you know, you know, idea. And this is uh, something that is urgent for the Jewish community as Jews um, to be looking at. And if we don't point that out, there's a lot of people that are just going to say, great, that's, you know, it's important that we have that. I recycle, I do my thing, but but I'm not really going to fight for it. Um, and we need to be having those voices up you know, uplifted. And we need these these campaigns to not just come from, you know, these climate activist um, organizations, but they need to be coming from Jewish organizations as well. Yeah, no, it's, it is a really good point. Sipora, thank you so much for your time and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for having me. Let us move on to our Nachas of the Week where we uh, talk about something Jewish and Canadian-ish sometimes um, that made us feel good about the week. Alana, what's your Nachas of the Week? So I started watching this TV show in the last two weeks, which I binged my way through, called Barry on Crave. And uh, I love the show. It's very dark as a warning um, for some of you who might look this up after. It's about a hitman who becomes an actor. And... Um, we have um, Jewish actor Henry Winkler playing the acting teacher. But what really uh, blew my mind, because I have um, a habit of, I finish a show and then I just stalk every person on IMDb and look at what they've done, what they've been in, that I've seen, all that kind of stuff. And I saw that the lead female actor on the show is a Canadian Jew and she's from Vancouver. Her name is Sarah Goldberg. I didn't know that and it kind of made it, you know, cool for me to see. I'm like, hey, we're, we're repping on this show. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will check it out. Melissa, what's your nachos of the week? Wrapping hard. Well, I've got I've got something Jewish, something Canadian, and something very very old. So this is this one's a shout out to our uh, uh, our the oldest person in Canada. After a year of hearing um, about the the mass amount of uh, of casualty in this uh, in this country, where I want to give a shout out to uh, Cecile Klein. She's from your hometown. Uh, yeah. I 
uh, Avi. She's 114. She lives at Maimonides, and I was literally just at Maimonides yesterday. And I was like, maybe I'll run into her. Did you see her? I did not. I went to see my friend who lives there. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a hard protocol. You can't even go down the wrong hallways. Uh, you have to, like, go to the person that you're visiting and all of that. So I didn't get to see her, but it's so awesome. Yeah, we got to do something to celebrate. The CJN Daily did a whole segment on her. Um and uh, she is pretty lucid still. She wasn't talking much, but you should definitely check out the CJN Daily's segment on her, Cecile Klein. So let's let's wish her, you know, let's 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 wish her the 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 old one, uh, the old one twenty for real this time though. What's your nachasavi? Um, I was I was at Indigo um, because I believe in bookstores, big and small, and physical ones. And I buy books from everywhere. I buy books online. I buy books in person. I buy books at used bookstores. I buy books in new bookstores. I love all bookstores. I'm the son of a librarian and I have a massive amount of books all the time. And I'm flipping through randomly and I find this book, Rick Salutin. Do you guys know Rick Salutin? No. Um, Canadian writer. Um, and he wrote this, he did this, uh, it's huge. It's like this big, big book that's a graphic novel illustration. Um, and it's called Gideon's Bible. And it's his... Uh, telling of like the early stories of the Bible because his son is named Gideon and he's talking to his son. It's a play on the Gideon Bibles that are in the, you know, every hotel room. In, in the hotel rooms. But his son's name is Gideon. His kid asks like, what's what's my name about? And so he has to start talking to him about the Bible. And it's like this really beautiful moving you know, it's more about the Bible than it is like about. It's not a commentary in the Bible, but it's really beautifully illustrated. And it's a really poignant, nice little tale about him and his son. And he's Canadian. Um, and it's a very nice um, book. And it's called Gideon's Bible. And awesome. you should go check it out. We're on it. Our rabbinic voice this week is Rabbi Shachar Ornstein, co-executive director of Aleph Canada and the co-founder of Teva Quebec. Hi, everyone. I want to share with you a teaching that I got from one of the leaders in the Jewish environmental movement today. His name is Rabbi Yonatan Nerl, and this teaching is featured on the Kanfei Nisharim website, which is a tremendous resource. I invite you to check it out. So there, Rabbi Yonatan Nerl recounts the story in this week's parasha that tells of two tribes, the tribe of Reuven and Gad, who have this talk with Moses. They say to Moses that we prioritize the economy more than we prioritize the education of our children. And Moses says, you got your priorities wrong. You got to get your priorities straight. And this raises the question, what are our priorities in our lives? Do we have our priorities right? Are our priorities the priorities that we need today? And so what I'd like to challenge us to do is to think of where we are prioritizing the environment in our list of priorities. Is there a small change that we can do in our life to bump up the environment, the ecology, the planet in our, in our daily life? I mean, it could be a small change and it could have a big impact. I want to share with you uh, something that I did and that we did together with Teva Quebec. As you may know, there's lots of forest fires going on. There's that heat dome happening in the West Coast. What did we do a few years back as a response? We went up north. There was a tribe, the Atikamek tribe, only 2,000 people left, but they had a forest fire that went to the edge of their community. We gathered a bunch of university students and we went, we showed our solidarity, we planted trees, and this was our humble effort to do something. Uh, we don't have to do something as exciting, as powerful as that, but I'm sure that there's something that you could do in your life. 
I and we challenge you to do something to bump up the environment, the ecology in our list of priorities so that we can rebalance our priorities. The earth is out of balance. I think that's pretty clear. How can we help balance, restore the balance in the earth and fulfill our mission, which is given to us in Breshit Le'ovda Le'shamra, to serve and protect the planet. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, July 8th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by so-called. Special thanks to Michael Citrome for letting me, not letting me, I just took it and I shamelessly ripped off the title of today's podcast from his Facebook wall. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Melissa Lantzman. And I'm Ilana Zakon. Bonjour.